0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Welcome to Censored, the podcast that enjoys taking offence. I'm Aoife Vritnach, a historian, but most importantly, a dedicated smut seeker. Thank you for listening and supporting the show as always. There are links in the show notes if you want to do that and more. For this episode, I'm looking at a magazine. I know it's usually novels or a sex manual, but the censorship law in Ireland was actually created to control magazines and newspapers. That they ended up banning thousands of books was kind of an unforeseen side effect. Those banned books obviously get loads of attention from historians because they're cultural artefacts with a lot of stability. We can still read The Catcher in the Rye today the exact same text that was banned. I mean, it's the whole reason I do this podcast, right? We can actually read the smut. But the banned magazines are mostly extinct now. How can I read an issue of a magazine censored in the 30s, when physical libraries don't collect that sort of thing? The answer, of course, is the internet, or more specifically, archive.org. It's ironic that the internet now preserves magazines, when part of the reason the industry collapsed was, well, the internet. But that aside, old magazines are out there in full Technicolor glory online anyone can flip through the pages of True Detective Mysteries from the 1920s. I've chosen a July 1930 edition, and the link is in the show notes so you can read it as well. This was an American magazine, and was a hugely popular true crime publication that ran from the 1920s through to the 70s, I think. You know the true crime podcasts we all listen to? They have their roots in this actual magazine, It practically spawned commercial true crime. It sold millions of copies in America, and presumably millions more in Ireland and Britain. It's not too much to say that this magazine laid the foundation stone for our contemporary popular culture of crime. True Detective Mysteries appears on the blacklist a few times. It was first permanently banned in 1938. But in 1941, it changed its name to True Detective removing the mysteries. When it did that, of course, it was now no longer banned. But in 1951, the censor fixed that, and True Detective was banned permanently, and stayed on the blacklist until 1973. The publishers tried to appeal this decision four times, but they lost each time. It's fair to say the censors were pretty determined to keep True Detective out of Ireland. That the publishers tried more than once to overturn it suggests the sales were worth their time and effort. I mean they had to write letters, get legal advice, who'd be bothered unless you were making money? So Irish people would have been reading this had they been able to buy it. The refreshing beverage I'm drinking alongside this magazine is a Coke because nothing is more American than a Coke and the sheer exuberant rampant Americanness of this magazine is what really struck me. I know Irish readers of the 1930s did not have access to coke, but they would have aspired to drink it. Probably yearned to drink it. American magazines portrayed that country as impossibly glamorous. Even the crime was sexier than ordinary Irish wrongdoing. Right, let's start reading True Detective Mysteries. The front cover is a bit lurid. The ghastly white face with bulging eyes is eye-catching, but for all the wrong reasons. The tagline is, Crimson Night, The Truth About the Canyon City Jailbreak. It sounds exciting, but it's an innocuous cover, really. There's no scantily clad ladies, for example. So when I opened the magazine, the first thing I did was giggle. On the very first page is an ad with the headline, But I thought that book was suppressed. Gasped Bess. How on earth did you ever get it? Imagine, censorship on page one. I couldn't believe my luck. The photo above the headline is clearly a cut-out job. There are various figures in attitudes of shock and horror. And best of all is the well-dressed girl showing her appalled friends a book. Like as if it's a box of washing powder, you know, holding it between her hands and showing it off around the room. The dialogue between the friends continues, and I'll read it to Decameron Tales cried Bess with a gasp as she read the title. Why, that's the book that's been tabooed for so long, isn't it? Where in the world did you get it? And then the bloke, Tom, chimes in. I've heard that it was so hot they had to put asbestos covers on it to keep people from getting their fingers burned. I love this ad so much. Never have I wanted to read a 14th century text so badly. The Decameron had a famously obscene history, It was added to a bonfire of filthy books in the 15th century and various popes tried to suppress it. It was one of the earliest entries into the Catholic Church's index of prohibited text. Now none of that historical context is written down. I had to go look that up. The ad seems to think the reader already knows this about the Decameron. Anyway, turns out Bess got the book through the post after seeing an ad in a magazine. She then reads out the advertisement to her friends. So it's an ad within an ad, which is very meta. The ad says, Written with such utter frankness as to be absolutely startling. And startling is in bold and italics. These tales have long been a storm centre of controversy and persecution. Critics have acclaimed them with unstinting praise for their sparkling vividness. While puritanic reformers, aghast at the way Boccaccio has exposed human life and love in the raw, have resorted to every possible means to keep this masterpiece from general circulation. Read it if you wish and decide for yourself whether or not it should be banned or censored. Honestly, this is irresistible to me. I would definitely cut out the coupon and send $1.98 to Franklin Books in Chicago. Who wouldn't? The ad ends with, the thrill of a lifetime awaits. This is particularly hilarious because you'll never guess what thrill means in American slang of the 1920s. Orgasm. I know, it's brilliant. Bye decameron, Cameron, get your rocks off while reading it. Satisfaction guaranteed. Already then, on page one of this edition, there was an ad that was going to piss off the censors. It mocks censorship while encouraging readers to decide for themselves, which is the opposite of what censors want people to do. It must have been absolutely infuriating. But in some ways, of course, it didn't matter at all, because Irish people couldn't get Decameron from Franklin Books. The payment system depended on giving the postman cash on delivery, which isn't much good for someone in Ballygo Backwards Ireland. I suppose an ad like this would be classified as a minor irritant rather than a serious threat. But I'm sure, as you know by now, from all the other episodes, disproportionate responses to perceived threats is a hallmark of censorship. And also a near-fatal lack of humour. I'll bet the censors didn't giggle when they read this ad. But there were more ads like this. A few pages later, I actually laughed out loud because there was an ad for French classics. These were all 19th century texts, which in the immortal words of the ad, vibrate with human passions. And among them was Madame Bovary. The same arguments are advanced in this ad too. Read this delicious world literature to learn more about culture, art and life. After all, you're just broadening your mind. This has nothing to do with smut at all, at all, except that they say risque and provocative and frank and startling and all of these words that really suggest there's a lot of salacious content in these books. But I'm not sure these ads would be enough to get true detective mystery banned. Selling daring classics through the US postal system isn't actually a crime in Ireland. But having seen these ads, I was thinking, what about all the other adverts? This magazine is 132 pages long and there are tons of ads. There are all sorts of products and services mentioned. There were medicines to fix prostate trouble. And then for the women, a little metal disc to help with your rupture. I don't even want to know. I didn't read it closely because it was so freaky. And of course, many get rich quick schemes. None of these would be out of place in a newspaper even if these ads are a bigger better more lush version of what you get in a daily once again i think it was books advertised in the magazine that probably drew the censor's eye on page 73 there is an ad for an intimate book on love that handles a delicate and mysterious subject with startling frankness there is that phrase again startling and that other loaded word frankness these are beginning to look like quite powerful allusions to specific types of content when read in more than one ad. This particular book is called How to Win and Hold Love and most of the subjects it discusses are relationship advice, like how, when and where a man should propose. That's one heading. But it's possible that the other headings like What every young man should know could include sex advice. It's funny how the language of the ad both promises and withholds. It's clear that American culture in 1930 does not want sexual content openly discussed. After all, obscenity legislation exists in America too. But the next ad that caught my eye was particularly juicy. It's on page 87... And it's for a daring book by Eleanor Glynn entitled This Passion Called Love. Glynn was a hugely successful romance author whose novels dated from 1900 to 1940. If you've actually used the phrase it to mean someone with an unquantifiable innate animal magnetism, you're quoting Eleanor Glynn. Still, we're still using concepts that she came up with. She sold hundreds of thousands of books, though critics admitted she was shite. Her work was considered risque, even though she herself was born in 1864, during the Victorian era. She's hardly a bright young thing when she's writing these books, but nonetheless she's a name, a brand associated with erotic romance. The ad capitalises on this association, describing her book as an amazingly frank book which concerns the most intimate relations of men and women. There we go again, the words frank and intimate. There's definitely an allusion here to sexual content. And the best bit of course, the real giveaway. The ad has a little note down at the bottom saying, This book will not be sold to anyone below 18. State age, well, I'll bet every horny teenager with a bit of cash rushed to buy it. For anyone worried about the neighbours or the postman, the book would arrive sealed in a plain wrapper. This is a masterclass in advertising titillation. I looked it up and Glyn's book did have a chapter called Babies and Birth Control, but this ad doesn't actually tell you that. There are hints with the age criteria and the brown paper wrapping, but it's not explicitly telling you what's in the book. Now this book was never banned but the reader of the ad would think they're getting something dangerous, possibly illicit. It's genius really, just pure genius. For the censors of course this sort of teasing ad would have driven them bananas. They might suspect what was in that book but they couldn't accuse the magazine of peddling birth control information. There just isn't enough proof. The many meanings of words like daring, Or, frank, couldn't be reduced to reproductive information. It's interesting how the ads don't mention feminine irregularities or obstruction, which were common code words when you wanted to sell an abortifacient. I think the editors knew exactly what they were doing, skirting around censorship and obscenity, as you would expect in 1930s America. So, banning true detective mysteries for cheeky birth control ads would have been difficult if the Irish censors wanted to stick to the letter of the law. Luckily for them, and unluckily for everyone else, there was another heading a magazine like this couldn't avoid. Crime. In the Register of Prohibited Publications, which is a big book listing all the banned stuff, this magazine has the word crime written next to it. Now that's a bit obvious, isn't it? Of course True Detective Mysteries is about crime. So were the novels of Agatha Christie, but none of those were ever banned. But a detective novel was considered a very different thing to a true crime magazine. Because Agatha Christie wrote fiction, her work couldn't fall under Section 14 of the 1929 Censorship Act. This was called restrictions on publication of reports of judicial proceedings. And it banned certain types of court reports, like those in divorce. So there were no more salacious columns sniggering at the sexual shenanigans of rich people after 1930. But the law also banned court reports on any indecent matter, the publication of which would be calculated to injure public morals. I particularly like calculated to injure public morals, as if editors deliberately published stuff that would corrupt the nation. I can't imagine the lads editing True Detective magazine ever thought about Ireland when they planned each edition. But their focus on true, real-life crime trials meant they were extremely likely to get caught in the censor's net. Right, it's about time we actually looked at the true crime content of the magazine. Let's just park the ads for now. It starts off with an article by a prison governor on prison riots. Seems okay. Then a very long detailed article on the Canyon prison riots in 1929 in Colorado. It was written by a newspaper journalist but is constructed with an eye to drama rather than facts. To be honest, it's a ripping read and full of imagined dialogue that just really jumps off the page, like this was one line. Come in and get me, you yellow-bellied coppers, if you think you're tough. Real hard-boiled pulp gangster stuff. The Canyon Prison Riot was apparently started by four alienated prisoners and ended with the National Guard showing up with field guns and a tank. There were chlorine bombs machine guns and explosions. The extraordinary level of violence from both prisoners and the state still reads, to me at least, as crazy. It's not that prison riots didn't happen here, but nothing can compare to the sheer excess of violence in this American example. Even if it wasn't told in sensational language, it would be shocking.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: (laughs) There's an Irish angle too. An Irish Benedictine priest, Father Patrick O'Neill, carried dynamite into the yard to blow up the walls. Now, it didn't actually work. He just made a big hole, but he tried. The riot finally ends when the ringleader, Danny Daniels, kills his colleagues and then himself. Seven prison guards were killed in the riot. By any measure, this is a remarkable story. But was it all true? I don't know. I don't know. It would require a lot of research to fact-check every single line. Besides, I think the appearance of truth was enough. Readers consumed this magazine on the understanding or in the hopes that it was true, or mostly true. They knew it was fictionalised, of course. Though it was heavily fictionalised, the censors could still feel that the true element to it was endangering the moral fibre of the nation. What I'm arguing here is that the censors objected to vibes as much as specific content or references. From all the reading I've done so far, I think the censors disapproved of gripping, stirring tales organised around violence. When those stories blended fact and fiction, that was even worse. And they weren't the only ones afraid of crime, to be fair to them. Concerns about violence undermining social order drove censorship in America in the 30s as well. People were terrified... That exciting crime stories would inspire copycat killings and robberies. The sheer glamour of American gangsters was potentially intoxicating. This is in spite of the fact that a lot of these narratives were standard morality tales, where the police eventually won. Gangsters often died in a hail of gunfire or got caught and went to jail. It's not like they triumphed that often. But the subversive potential of working-class men, often immigrants, making fortunes out of crime was pretty scary. Even doomed anti-heroes can be fascinating. It was especially disturbing that people convicted of crimes blamed their violence on the media they were consuming. In this very edition, a young man hanged for kidnap and murder blamed the movies, too much reading of cheap fiction, and his envy of the rich for the crime. So even the criminals are saying it. It must be true. Bad books make bad people. Now obviously there weren't enough gangster stories to populate a whole 132 page magazine, so most of the pages were inevitably dedicated to, you've guessed it, murder. When I was reading this I could really see the roots of our contemporary true crime genre in this one edition. It starts off of course with the familiar trope of a murdered young woman. The story opens in that depressing way with the reader contemplating her dead body. Anyone who's ever rolled their eyes when the body, beautiful but violated, of a woman is lingered over in a crime story will recognize this straight away. So I'll read you the first paragraph, just to show you the style from this particular edition. Almost entirely covered by the shrubbery on the banks of the Mantua Creek, New Jersey, lay the body of a young girl. She had been beautiful, but not now. She had been a happy, innocent girl of 17 years, a teacher of small children in her Sunday school, a girl who found happiness in her own home, a girl with no boyfriends. Feck's sake, this is so predictable. We have already established all the important information. She was conventionally attractive, a good Christian and virginal. In other words, she's the perfect victim. The tropes of much crime writing, both true and fictional, are clear to see here. Now this story is supposed to be by the sheriff who ran the case, but it is as told too a journalist. So that often toxic intersection between reporters and police, that blending of fact and fiction that comes out of it, that was well established by 1930. A number of articles in this edition are by the lawmen who supposedly solved the case, but they are told to a journalist. And after the murdered girl, there's another wonderful true crime trope, solve it yourself, where the reader turns detective. There's a story called What Became of Eugene Bassett, which glories under the tagline When you have read this, what is your answer? Armchair sleuthing really did predate the True Crime podcast by many decades. And the tropes go on. It's kind of scary how transparent these are to me. Next up is a genre stalwart, the celebrity criminal telling his side of the story. And this one's entitled, The Confession of Frank Silsby, Master Criminal, Told by Himself. And here we have the criminal centre stage, as is so often the case in much true crime. Last but not least, there's the death row story. In this case, a grotesque account by a supposed eyewitness. It's called, and I shit you not, I Saw Dr. Snook Die! Exclamation mark. The declamatory sensationalism. It's pretty awful in my opinion. Some of this emotional excess has been rounded off the true crime genre in recent years, but then it's become more explicit about sex and violence, so is it really any better? I know, I'm beginning to sound censorious, given out about genres, but I actually read crime novels. I don't think the genre is trash by definition. I used to read all that gory stuff too. The post mortem procedurals until the violence actually became too much for me. I have a lot of criticisms to make of true crime and how it's bleeding into popular history, but I don't think banning it would actually work. Anyway, some of the best true crime stuff today challenges all these lazy stereotypes that were established in true detective mysteries. But enough about the tropes and the critiques. It's time for censorship bingo. And I think I'm going to have to do two types of bingo here for True Crime Mysteries. I'm going to talk about the text of the magazine, but also the ads. Because they're running in parallel, but they are distinct narratives too. As usual, let's start with breasts. Nope, not a single mention in the text. There are beautiful dead bodies, yes, but no identifying body parts. And it's the same for the ads. The illustrations of the women are all very polite. Bestiality. No. Sex work. No, not in this 1930s edition. All the victims are virgins. But having looked at the covers of later editions, I think victims get constructed in different ways. Next up, racism. Well, that depends on the story. In general, I would say there is a refusal to even admit racial tensions exist. Of course, there's one story set in Honolulu. The opening paragraph swiftly denies any racial tension and then exoticizes the whole population. So, I think we could take this one: drugs. I'm surprised that there weren't any at all, but there weren't then politics well, yes, because this is straight-up propaganda. It's extremely conservative and full of state-centric narratives, so yeah, we'd have to take that. Then swearing. Honestly the language was unbelievably clean. I suppose this is family entertainment. I'm sure this reflects deliberate censorship here. If you were to be reproducing the speech patterns of violent deranged killers they wouldn't all sound so folksy. Then infidelity. Well yes. Cheating on your wife can lead to murder according to at least one story. Crime. Yes obviously the whole thing is about crime. Then genitalia. No. Abortion. No not at all. I mean it is illegal in the US at the time so those teasing ads wouldn't dare to be open about it either. Orgies. Uh, No. Sexual assault. Oddly for true crime. No. It's strange it doesn't feature more given the genre's current obsessions but I think that just shows you how it has evolved over time. Then, extramarital pregnancy. No. Not this time. Masturbation. No. Sex toys. No. Feminism. Definitely not. Divorce. Well, in the text, no. But in the ads, yes, because those intimate love guides do mention divorce and how to avoid it. Then, contraception. Well, once again, in the text of the true crime, no. But the books advertised probably do deal with it, even though the references are extremely oblique. I suspect people ordered those books hoping to get information. So we'd have to take it in one case. Menstruation. No, not in the true crime narratives. But there is a hint of it in an ad on page 79. It says, when your daughter asks this question, let her read The Newer Knowledge of Feminine Hygiene. Unfortunately the question is never specified but it definitely concerns the genital area because it seems this is an ad for a vaginal douche. Yikes. I mean it sounds awful. I won't read it out so everyone can safely unclench now. Then blasphemy? No. Oral sex? No not at all. Next up graphic violence. The storytelling is pretty tame and unobjectionable But some of the photographs, like the crime scene photographs, they are potentially graphic. There is a picture of the jail interior after the riot and it appears to be covered in blood. So I think we could tick that. And finally, LGBTQ plus content. No, I have to say I didn't come across anything. Right, true detective mysteries then. If we look at two different scores, we have four for the content alone and three for the ads so that's seven if you put them both together. That is a relatively high score for a 1930s publication, but I do want to emphasize the caginess of the language. It is deliberately mild and coy, and that reflects its huge popularity and wide reach. It had to be an offensive to be a mass market success. So would I recommend you go online and read it? To be fair, it's pretty diverting. The prose rattles along and it's good fun. The saddest parts for me apart from all the violence and murder were the ads. It was full of get rich quick schemes or learn how to improve yourself from this book alongside of course the usual make yourself beautiful talented and skinny. There's so much yearning in those ads they make melancholy reading. All those people hoping for riches, success, a better life They wasted their dollars on scams. Because you know all of these things are just scams. It's funny, but reading a dead magazine like this is kind of eerie. Because the publication wasn't intended to last that long. The presentness of it contrasts with the passage of time and how far away we are from that moment. It's just kind of odd and uneasy. Anyway, True Detective Mysteries and the later edition of True Detective are available for your true-ish crime delectation on archive.org if you do fancy it. I'm staying in the 1930s for the next episode, but I'm going back to novels. I'm returning to one of my favourite authors, Stella Gibbons, because she's always good for fun and frolics. Till then, Keep your hands clean and your minds filthy.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans